Welcome to episode 1S of the podcast, Literature Soothingly Read. I'm Daniel Taylor, your host. Happy New Year! With Christmas 2018 gone, with the ghost of Christmas past, we return to the sea and Moby Dick. Last time, Ishmael had exercised his want and digressed from the main narrative into a consideration of the types and respective accuracy of artistic and fantastic representations of whales in media, as wide-ranging as painting, drawing, carvings from teeth and wood, sheet iron and stone, and even imagined likenesses in the ridge of some mountain range or among the starry hosts, say. As an editorial note, may I say uh, that I do hope the narrative will henceforth proceed uninterrupted, but why, oh why, do I cynically doubt the preceding statement as I read it? We shall see. Chapter 58 Brit Steering northeastward from the Crozettes, we fell in with vast meadows of brit, the minute yellow substance upon which the right whale largely feeds. For leagues and leagues it undulated around us, so that we seemed to be sailing through boundless fields of ripe and golden wheat. On the second day, numbers of right whales were seen who, secure from the attack of a sperm whaler like the Pequod, with open jaws sluggishly swam through the Brit, which, adhering to the uh, fringing fibers of that wondrous Venetian blind in their mouths, was in that manner separated from the water that escaped at the lip. As morning mowers, who side by side slowly and seethingly advance their skies through the long wet grass of marshy, marshy meads, even so these monsters swam, making a strange grassy cutting sound, and leaving behind them endless swaths of blue upon the yellow sea. There is a footnote here. That part of the sea known among whalemen as the Brazil Banks does not bear that name as the Banks of Newfoundland do, because of there being shallows and soundings there, but because of this remarkable meadow-like appearance caused by the vast drifts of Brit continually floating in those latitudes where the right whale is often chased. Back to the main narrative. But it was only the sound they made as they parted the Brit, which at all reminded one of mowers. Seen from the mastheads, especially when they paused and were stationary for a while, their vast black forms looked more like lifeless masses of rock than anything else. And as in the great hunting countries of India, the stranger at a distance will sometimes pass on the plains recumbent elephants without knowing them to be such, taking them for bare, blackened elevations of the soil. Even so, often with him who for the first time beholds this species of the leviathans of the sea. And even when recognized at last, their immense magnitude renders it very hard really to believe that such bulky masses of overgrowth can possibly be instinct in all parts with the same sort of life that lives in a dog or a horse. Indeed, in other respects, 
You can hardly regard any creatures of the deep with the same feelings that you do those of the shore. Uh, for though some old naturalists have maintained that all creatures of the land are of their kind in the sea, and though taking a broad general view of the thing, this may very well be, yet coming to specialities where, uh, for example, uh, does the ocean furnish any fish that in disposition answers to the sagacious kindness of the dog? The accursed shark alone can in any generic respect be said to bear a comparative analogy to him. But though, uh, to landsmen in general, the native inhabitants of the seas have ever been regarded with emotions unspeakably unsocial and repelling, though we know the sea to be an everlasting terra incognita, so that Columbus sailed over numberless unknown worlds to discover his one superficial western one, though by vast odds, the most horrific of all mortal disasters have immemorially and indiscriminately befallen tens and hundreds of thousands of those who have gone upon the waters, though but a moment's consideration will teach that, however baby man may brag of his science and skill, and however much in a flattering future that science and skill may augment, yet forever and forever, to the crack of doom, the sea will insult and murder him and pulverize the stateliest, stiffest frigate he can make. Nevertheless, by the continual repetition of these very impressions, man has lost that sense of the full awfulness of the sea, which aboriginally belongs to it. The first boat we read of floated on an ocean that with Portuguese vengeance had whelmed the whole world without leaving so much as a widow. That same ocean rolls now. That same ocean destroyed the wrecked ships of last year. Yea, foolish mortals, Noah's flood is not yet subsided. Two-thirds of the fair world it yet covers. Wherein differ the sea and the land? that a miracle upon one is not a miracle upon the other. Preternatural terrors rested upon the Hebrews, when under the feet of Korah and his company the live ground opened and swallowed them up forever, yet not a modern sun ever sets, but in precisely the same manner the live sea swallows up ships and crews. But not only is the sea such a foe to man who is an alien to it, but it is also a fiend to its own offspring, worse than the Persian host who murdered his own guests, sparing not the creatures which itself hath spawned. Like a savage tigress that tossing in the jungle overlays her own cubs, so the sea dashes even the mightiest whales against the rocks, and leaves them there side by side with the split wrecks of ships. No mercy, no power but its own controls it. Panting and snorting like a mad battle-steed that has lost its rider, the masterless ocean overruns the globe. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. Consider all this, and then turn to this green gentle and most docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land. 
And do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? For as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. God keep thee, push not off from that isle, thou canst never return. Chapter 59 Squid Slowly wading through the meadows of Brit, the Pequod still held on her way northeastward toward the island of Java, a gentle air impelling her keel so that in the surrounding serenity her three tall tapering masts mildly waved to that languid breeze as three mild palms on a plain. And still, at wide intervals in the silvery night, the lonely alluring jet would be seen. But one transparent blue morning, when a stillness, almost preternatural, spread over the sea, however unattended with any stagnant calm, when the long burnished sun-glade on the waters seemed a golden finger laid across them, enjoining some secrecy, when the slippered waves whispered together as they softly ran on, in this profound hush of the visible sphere, a strange spectre was seen by Dagoo from the main masthead. In the distance, a great white mass lazily rose, and rising higher and higher and disentangling itself from the azure, at last gleamed before our prow like a snow-slide, new slid from the hills. Thus, glistening for a moment, as slowly it subsided and sank. Then once more arose and silently gleamed. It seemed not a whale, and yet, is this Moby Dick? thought Dagoo. Again the phantom went down, but on reappearing once more with a stiletto-like cry that startled every man from his nod, the negro yelled out, There, there again, there she breaches, right ahead, the white whale, the white whale! Upon this, the seamen rushed to the yard-arms, as in swarming time the bees rushed to the bows. Bareheaded in the sultry sun, Ahab stood on the bowsprit, with one hand pushed far behind, in readiness to wave his orders to the helmsman, cast his eager glance in the direction indicated aloft by the outstretched motionless arm of Dagoo. Whether the flitting attendance of the one still and solitary jet had gradually worked upon Ahab, so that he was now prepared to connect the ideas of mildness and repose with the first sight of the particular whale he pursued, however this was or whether his eagerness betrayed him, whichever way it might have been, no sooner did he distinctly perceive the white mass than with a quick intensity he instantly gave orders for lowering. The four boats were soon on the water, Ahab's in advance, and all swiftly pulling towards their prey. Soon it went down, and while with oars suspended we were awaiting its reappearance, lo, in the same spot where it sank, once more it slowly rose. Almost forgetting for the moment all thoughts of Moby Dick, we now gazed at the most wondrous phenomenon which the secret seas have hitherto revealed to mankind. A vast, pulpy mass, furlongs in length and breadth, of a glancing cream color, lay floating on the water, 
innumerable long arms radiating from its center and curling and twisting like a nest of anacondas, as if blindly to catch at any hapless object within reach. No perceptible face or front did it have, no conceivable token of either sensation or instinct, but undulated there on the billows an earthly, formless, chance-like apparition of life. As with a low sucking sound, it slowly disappeared again, Starbuck, still gazing at the agitated waters where it had sunk, with a wild voice exclaimed, Almost rather had I seen Moby Dick, and fought him, than to have seen thee, thou white ghost. What is it, sir? said Flask. The great live squid, which they say few whale ships ever beheld, and returned to their ports to tell of it. But Ahab said nothing. Turning his boat, he sailed back to the vessel, the rest as silently following. Whatever superstitions the sperm whalemen in general have connected with the sight of this object, certain it is that a glimpse of it being so very unusual that circumstance has gone far to invest it with portentousness. So rarely is it beheld that though one and all of them declare it to be the largest animated thing in the ocean, yet very few of them have any but the most vague ideas concerning its true nature and form. Notwithstanding, they believe it to furnish to the sperm whale his only food. For though other species of whales find their food above water, and may be seen by man in the act of feeding, the spermacetti whale obtains his whole food in unknown zones below the surface, and only by inference is it that any one can tell of what, precisely, that food consists. At times, when closely pursued, he will disgorge what are supposed to be the detached arms of the squid, some of them thus exhibited exceeding twenty and thirty feet in length. They fancy that the monster, to which these arms belonged, ordinarily clings by them to the bed of the ocean, and that the sperm whale, unlike other species, is supplied with teeth in order to attack and tear it. There seems some ground to imagine that the great kraken of Bishop uh, Pontopadan may ultimately resolve itself into squid. The manner in which the bishop describes it, as alternately rising and sinking with some other particulars he narrates, in all this the two correspond. But much abatement is necessary with respect to the incredible bulk he assigns it. By some naturalists, who have vaguely heard rumors of the mysterious creature here spoken of, it is included among the class of cuttlefish, to which, indeed, in certain external respects it would seem to belong, but only as the anak of the tribe. Chapter 60 The Line With reference to the whaling scene shortly to be described, as well as for the better understanding of all similar scenes elsewhere presented, I have here to speak of the magical, sometimes horrible, whale line. The line, originally used in the fishery, was of the best hemp, slightly vapored with tar, not impregnated with it, as in the case of ordinary ropes, for while tar, as ordinarily used, makes the hemp more pliable to the rope-maker, and also renders the rope itself more convenient to the sailor for common ship use, 
yet not only would the ordinary quantity too much stiffen the whale line for the close coiling to which it must be subjected, but as most seamen are beginning to learn, tar in general by no means adds to the rope's durability or strength, however much it may give it compactness and gloss. Of late years the manila rope has in the American fishery almost entirely superseded hemp as a material for whale lines, for though not so durable as hemp, it is stronger, and far more soft and elastic. And I will add, since there is an aesthetics in all things, is much more handsome and becoming to the boat than hemp. Hemp is a dusky, dark fellow, a sort of Indian, but Manila is as a golden-haired Circassian to behold. The whale line is only two-thirds of an inch in thickness. At first sight, you would not think it so strong as it really is. By experiment, its one and fifty yarns will each suspend a weight of one hundred and twenty pounds, so that the whole rope will bear a strain nearly equal to three tons. In length, the common sperm whale line measures something over two hundred fathoms. Towards the stern of the boat, it is spirally coiled away in the tub, not like the worm pipe of a still, though, but so as to form one round cheese-shaped mass of densely bedded sheaves, or layers of concentric spiralizations, without any hollow but the heart, or minute vertical tube formed at the axis of the cheese. As the least tangle or kink in the coiling would infallibly take somebody's arm, leg, or entire body off, the utmost precaution is used in stowing the line in its tub. Some harpooners will consume almost an entire morning in this business, carrying the line aloft and then reeving it downwards through a block towards the tub, so as in the act of coiling to free it from all possible wrinkles and twists. In the English boats, two tubs are used instead of one, the same line being continuously coiled in both tubs. There is some advantage in this, because these twin tubs being so small they fit more readily into the boat, and do not strain it so much, whereas the American tub, in nearly three feet in diameter and of proportionate depth, makes a rather bulky freight for a craft whose planks are but one half inch in thickness, for the bottom of the whale boat is like critical ice, which will bear up a considerable distributed weight, but not very much of a concentrated one. When the painted canvas cover is clapped on the American tub line, the boat looks as if it were pulling off with a prodigious great wedding cake to present to the whales. Both ends of the line are exposed, the lower end terminating in an eye splice or loop coming up from the bottom against the side of the tub and hanging over its edge completely disengaged from everything. This arrangement of the lower end is necessary on two accounts. First, in order to facilitate the fastening to it of an additional line from a neighboring boat, in case the stricken whale should sound so deep as to threaten to carry off the entire line originally attached to the harpoon. In these instances, the whale, of course, is shifted like a mug of ale, as it were, from the one boat to the other, though the first boat always hovers at hand to assist its consort. Second, this arrangement is indispensable for common safety's sake, for were the lower end of the line in any way attached to the boat, and were the whale then to run the line out to the end almost in a single smoking minute, as he sometimes does, he would not stop there, for the doomed boat would infallibly be dragged down after him into the profundity of the sea, 
and in that case no town crier would ever find her again. Before lowering the boat for the chase, the upper end of the line is taken aft from the tub, and passing round the loggerhead there is again carried forward the entire length of the boat, resting crosswise upon the loom or handle of every man's oar, so that it jogs against his wrist in rowing, and also passing between the men, as they alternately sit at the opposite gunwales, uh, to the leaded chocks or grooves in the extreme pointed prow of the boat, where a wooden pin or skewer the size of a common quill prevents it from slipping out. From the chocks it hangs in a slight festoon over the bows, and is then passed inside the boat again, and some ten or twenty fathoms, called box-line, being coiled upon the box in the bows, it continues its way into the gunwale, still a little further aft, and is then attached to the short warp, the rope which is immediately connected with the harpoon. Uh, but previous to that connection, the short warp goes through sundry mystifications too tedious to detail. Thus, the whale line folds the whole boat in its complicated coils, twisting and writhing around it in almost every direction. All the oarsmen are involved in its perilous contortions, so that to the timid eye of the landsmen they seem as Indian jugglers, with the deadliest snakes sportively festooning their limbs. Nor can any son of mortal woman, for the first time, seat himself amid those hempen intricacies, and while straining his utmost at the oar, bethink him that at any unknown instant the harpoon may be darted and all these horrible contortions be put in play like ringed lightnings. He cannot be thus circumstanced without a shudder that makes the very marrow in his bones to quiver in him like a shaken jelly. Yet habit, strange thing, what cannot habit accomplish? Gayer sallies, more merry mirth, better jokes, and brighter repartees you never heard over your mahogany than you will hear over the half-inch white cedar of the whale-boat when thus hung in hangman's nooses, and like the six burghers of Calais before King Edward, the six men composing the crew pull into the jaws of death, with a halter around every neck, as you may say. Perhaps a very little thought will now enable you to account for those repeated whaling disasters, some few of which are casually chronicled, of this man or that man being taken out of the boat by the line and lost. For when the line is darting out, to be seated then in the boat is like being seated in the midst of the manifold whizzings of a steam engine in full play, when every flying beam and shaft and wheel is grazing you. It is worse, for you cannot sit motionless in the heart of these perils, because the boat is rocking like a cradle and you are pitched one way and the other, without the slightest warning and only by a certain self-adjusting buoyancy and simultaneousness of volition and action can you escape being made a mazeppa of and run away with where the all-seeing sun himself could never pierce you out again as the profound calm which only apparently precedes and prophecies of the storm is perhaps more awful than the storm itself for indeed the calm is but the wrapper and envelope of the storm, and contains it in itself, as the seemingly harmless rifle holds the fatal powder and the ball in the explosion. Uh, so the graceful repose of the line, as it silently serpentines about the oarsmen before being brought into actual play, this is a thing which carries more of true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? 
All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters round their necks. But it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in the whaleboat, you would not at heart feel one whit more of terror than though seated before your evening fire with a poker, and not a harpoon by your side. Chapter 61 Stub Kills a Whale If to Starbuck the apparition of the squid was a thing of portents, to Queequeg it was quite a different object. When you see him quid, said the savage, honing his harpoon on the bow of his hoisted boat, then you quick see him berm well. The next day was exceedingly still and sultry, and with nothing special to engage them, the Pequod's crew could hardly resist the spell of sleep, induced by such a vacant sea. For this part of the Indian Ocean, through which we were then voyaging, is not what whalemen call a lively ground. That is, it affords fewer glimpses of porpoises, dolphins, flying fish, and other vivacious denizens of more stirring waters than those off the Rio de la Plata or the inshore ground off Peru. It was my turn to stand at the foremast head and with my shoulders leaning against these slackened royal shrouds, to and fro I idly swayed in what seemed an enchanted air. No resolution could withstand it. In that dreamy mood losing all consciousness, at last my soul went out of my body, though my body still continued to sway as a pendulum will, long after the power which first moved it is withdrawn. Ere forgetfulness altogether came over me, I had noticed that the seamen at the main and mizzen mastheads were already drowsy, so that at last all three of us lifelessly swung from the spars, and for every swing that we made there was a nod from below from the slumbering helmsman. The waves, too, nodded their indolent crests, and across the wide trance of the sea east nodded to west, and the sun over all. Suddenly, Bubbles seemed bursting beneath my closed eyes. Like vices, my hands grasped the shrouds. Some invisible gracious agency preserved me. With a shock, I came back to life. And, lo, close under our lee, not forty fathoms off, a gigantic sperm whale lay rolling in the water like the capsized hull of a frigate, his broad, glossy back of an Ethiopian hue glistening in the sun's rays like a mirror but lazily undulating in the trough of the sea, and ever and anon tranquilly spouting his vapory jet, the whale looked like a portly burgher smoking his pipe of a warm afternoon. But that pipe, poor whale, was thy last. As if struck by some enchanter's wand, the sleepy ship and every sleeper in it all at once started into wakefulness and more than a score of voices from all parts of the vessel, simultaneously with the three notes from aloft, shouted forth the accustomed cry as the great fish slowly and regularly spouted the sparkling brine into the air. "'Clear away the boats, luff!' cried Ahab. And obeying his own order, he dashed the helm down before the helmsman could handle the spokes." 
The sudden exclamations of the crew must have alarmed the whale, and ere the boats were down, majestically turning, he swam away to the leeward, but with such a steady tranquillity, and making so few ripples as he swam, that thinking, after all, he might not as yet be alarmed, Ahab gave orders that not an oar should be used, and no man must speak but in whispers. So seated like Ontario Indians on the gunwales of the boats, we swiftly but silently paddled along, the calm not admitting of the noiseless sails being set. Presently, as we thus glided in chase, the monster perpendicularly flitted his tail forty feet into the air, and then sank out of sight like a tower swallowed up. "'There go flukes!' was the cry, an announcement immediately followed by Stubbs producing his match and igniting his pipe, for now a respite was granted. After the full interval of his sounding had elapsed, the whale rose again, and being now in advance of the smoker's boat and much nearer to it than any of the others, Stubb counted upon the honor of the capture. It was obvious now that the whale had at length become aware of his pursuers. All silence of cautiousness was therefore no longer of use. Paddles were dropped and oars came loudly into play. And still puffing at his pipe, Stubb cheered on his crew to the assault. Yes, a mighty change had come over the fish. All alive to his jeopardy, he was now going head out, that part obliquely projecting from the mad yeast which he brewed. And a footnote here. It will be seen in some other place, of what a very light substance the entire interior of the sperm whale's enormous head consists. Though apparently the most massive, it is by far the most buoyant part about him, so that with ease he elevates it in the air, and invariably does so when going at his utmost speed. Besides, such is the breadth of the upper part of the front of his head, and such the tapering cut-water formation of the lower part, that by obliquely elevating his head, he thereby may be said to transform himself from a bluff-bowed sluggish galliot into a sharp-pointed New York pilot boat. We now return to the main narrative. Starter, starter, my men! Don't hurry yourselves, take plenty of time, but starter, starter like thunderclaps, that's all, cried Stubb, sputtering out the smoke as he spoke. Starter now, give him the long and strong stroke, Tash to go. Starter, Tash, my boy, starter all, but keep cool, keep cool, cucumbers is the word. Easy, easy, only starter like grim death and grinning devils and raise the buried dead perpendicular out of their graves, boys, and that's all, starter! Why? screamed the gay header in reply, raising some old war whoop to the skies, as every oarsman in the strained boat involuntarily bounced forward with the one tremendous leading stroke which the eager Indian gave. But his wild screams were answered by others quite as wild. Kihi, kihi! yelled Dagoo, straining forwards and backwards on his seat like a pacing tiger in his cage. Kala, kolo! howled Queequeg, as if smacking his lips over a mouthful of grenadier's steak. And thus, with oars and yells, the keels cut the sea. Meanwhile, Stubb, retaining his place in the van, still encouraged his men to the onset, all the while puffing the smoke from his mouth. Like desperados, they tugged and they strained, till the welcome cry was heard, Stand up, Testigo! Give it to him! 
the harpoon was hurled. Stern all! The oarsmen backed water. The same moment something went hot and hissing along every one of their wrists. It was the magical line. An instant before, Stubb had swiftly caught two additional turns with it round the loggerhead, whence, by reason of its increased rapid circlings, a hempen blue smoke now jetted up and mingled with the steady fumes from his pipe. As the line passed round and round the loggerhead, so also, just before reaching that point, it blisteringly passed through and through both of Stubb's hands, from which the handcloths, or squares of quilted canvas sometimes worn at these times, had accidentally dropped. It was like holding an enemy's sharp, two-edged sword by the blade, and that enemy all the time striving to wrest it out of your clutch. What the line! "'Wet the line!' cried Stubb to the tub oarsman, him seated by the tub, who, snatching off his hat, dashed the seawater into it. Footnote. Partly to show the indispensableness of this act, it may here be stated that, in the old Dutch fishery, a mop was used to dash the running line with water. In many other ships, a wooden piggin or baler is set apart for that purpose. Your hat, however, is the most convenient.' Back to the main narrative. More turns were taken, so that the line began holding its place. The boat now flew through the boiling water like a shark all fins. Stubb and Testigo here changed places, stem for stern. A staggering business, truly, in that rocking commotion. From the vibrating line extending the entire length of the upper part of the boat, and from its now being more tight than a harp-string, you would have thought the craft had two keels, one cleaving the water, the other the air, as the boat churned on through both opposing elements at once. A continual cascade played at the bows, a ceaseless whirling eddy in her wake, and at the slightest motion from within, even but of a little finger, the vibrating, crackling craft canted over her spasmodic gunwale into the sea. Thus they rushed, each man with might and main clinging to his seat to prevent being tossed to the foam, and the tall form of Teshtigo at the steering oar crouching almost double in order to bring down his center of gravity. Whole Atlantics and Pacific seemed past as they shot on their way till at length the whale somewhat slackened his fight. "'Haul in! Haul in!' cried Stubb to the bowsman, and facing round towards the whale all hands began pulling the boat up to him, while yet the boat was being towed on. Soon, ranging up by his flank, Stubb, firmly planting his knee in the clumsy cleat, darted dart after dart into the flying fish. At the word of command, the boat alternately sterning out of the way of the whale's horrible wallow, and then ranging up for another fling. The red tide now poured from all sides of the monster like brooks down a hill. His tormented body rolled not in brine, but in blood, which bubbled and seethed for furlongs behind in their wake. The slanting sun playing upon this crimson pond in the sea sent back its reflection into every face, so that they all glowed to each other like red men. And all the while jet after jet of white smoke was agonizingly shot from the spiracle of the whale, 
and vehement puff after puff from the mouth of the excited headsman, as at every dart hauling in upon his crooked lance by the line attached to it, Stubbs straightened it again and again, by a few rapid blows against the gunwale, then again and again sent it into the whale. "'Pull up! Pull up!' he now cried to the bowsman, as the waning whale relaxed in its wrath. "'Pull up! Close to!' And the boat ranged along the fish's flank. When reaching far over the bow, Stubb slowly churned his long, sharp lance into the fish and kept it there, carefully churning and churning, as if cautiously seeking to feel after some gold watch that the whale might have swallowed, and which he was fearful of breaking ere he could hook it out. But that gold watch he sought was the innermost life of the fish, and now it is struck for starting from his trance into that unspeakable thing called his flurry, the monster horribly wallowed in his blood, overwrapped himself in impenetrable mad boiling spray, so that the imperiled craft instantly dropping astern had much ado blindly to struggle out from that frenzied twilight into the clear air of the day. And now, abating in his flurry, the whale once more rolled out into view, surging from side to side, spasmodically dilating and contracting his spout-hole, with sharp, cracking, agonized respirations. At last, gush after gush of clotted red gore, as if it had been the purple lees of red wine, shot into the frightened air, and falling back again, ran dripping down his motionless flanks into the sea. His heart had burst. "'He's dead, Mr. Stubb,' said Dagoo. "'Yes, both pipes smoked out!' And withdrawing his own from his mouth, Stubb scattered the dead ashes over the water, and, for a moment, stood thoughtfully eyeing the vast corpse he had made. Chapter 62 The Dart A word concerning an incident in the last chapter... According to the invariable usage of the fishery, the whale-boat pushes off from the ship, with the headsman or whale-killer as a temporary steersman, and the harpooner or whale-fastener pulling the foremost oar, the one known as the harpooner oar. Now it needs a strong, nervous arm to strike the first iron into the fish, for often, in what is called a long dart, the heavy implement has to be flung to the distance of twenty or thirty feet. But however prolonged and exhausting the chase, the harpooner is expected to pull his oar meanwhile to the uttermost. Indeed, he is expected to set an example of superhuman activity to the rest, not only by incredible rowing, but by repeated loud and intrepid exclamations, and what it is to keep shouting at the top of one's compass while all the other muscles are strained and half-started, what that is none know but those who have tried it. For one, I cannot bawl very heartily and uh, work very recklessly at one and the same time. In this straining, bawling state, then, with his back to the fish, all at once the exhausted harpooner hears the exciting cry, Stand up and give it to him. He, has, he now has to drop and secure his oar, turn round on his center halfway, seize his harpoon from the crotch, and with what little strength may remain he essays to pitch it somehow into the whale. 
no wonder, taking the whole fleet of whalemen in a body, that out of fifty fair chances for a dart not five are successful. No wonder that so many hapless harpooners are madly cursed and disrated, and no wonder that some of them actually burst their blood vessels in the boat. No wonder that some sperm whalemen are absent four years with four barrels. No wonder that to many ship owners whaling is but a losing concern, for it is the harpooner that makes the voyage. And if you take the breath out of his body, how can you expect to find it there when most wanted? Again, if the dart be successful, then at the second critical instant, that is, when the whale starts to run, the boat header and harpooner likewise start to running fore and aft, to the eminent jeopardy of themselves and everyone else. It is then they change places, and the headsman, the chief officer of the little craft, takes his proper station in the bows of the boat. Now, I care not who maintains the contrary, but all this is both foolish and unnecessary. The headsman should stay in the bows from first to last. He should both dart the harpoon and the lance, and no rowing whatever should be expected of him except under circumstances obvious to any fisherman. I know that this would sometimes involve a slight loss of speed in the chase, but long experience in various whalemen of more than one nation has convinced me that in the vast majority of failures in the fishery it has not by any means been so much the speed of the whale as the before-described exhaustion of the harpooner that has caused them. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out of toil. Chapter 63 The Crotch Out of the trunk the branches grow, out of them the twigs. So in productive subjects grow the chapters. The crotch alluded to on a previous page deserves independent mention. It is a notched stick of a peculiar form, some two feet in length, which is perpendicularly inserted into the starboard gunwale near the bow, for the purpose of furnishing a rest for the wooden extremity of the harpoon, whose other naked barbed end slopingly projects from the prow. Thereby the weapon is instantly at hand to its hurler, who snatches it up as readily from its rest as a backwoodsman swings his rifle from the wall. It is customary to have two harpoons reposing in the crotch, respectively called the first and second irons. But these two harpoons, each by its own cord, are both connected with the line, the object being this, to dart them both if possible, one instantly after the other into the same whale, so that if, in the coming drag, one should draw out, the other may still retain a hold. It is a doubling of the chances, but it very often happens that owing to the instantaneous, violent, convulsive running of the whale upon receiving the first iron, it becomes impossible for the harpooner, however lightning-like in his movements, to pitch the second iron into him. Nevertheless, as the second iron is already connected with the line, and the line is running, hence that weapon must, at all events, be anticipatingly tossed out of the boat, somehow and somewhere, else the most terrible jeopardy would involve all hands. 
tumbled into the water it accordingly is in such cases the spare coils of box line mentioned in a preceding chapter making this feat in most instances prudently practicable but this critical act is not always unattended with the saddest and most fatal casualties furthermore you must know that when the second iron is thrown overboard it thenceforth becomes a dangling sharp-edged terror skittishly curvetting about both boat and whale entangling the lines or cutting them and making a prodigious sensation in all directions nor in general is it possible to secure it again until the whale is fairly captured and a corpse consider now how it must be in the case of four boats all engaging one unusually strong active and knowing whale when owing to these qualities in him as well as to the thousand concurring accidents of such an audacious enterprise eight or ten loose second irons may be simultaneously dangling about him for of course each boat is supplied with several harpoons to bend on to the line should the first one be ineffectually darted without recovery all these particulars are faithfully narrated here as they will not fail to elucidate several most important however intricate passages in scenes hereafter to be painted.